All right. One day, a young man in his early to mid-20s uh, came into my office uh, where I was serving as the young adult pastor at a church in Cedar Rapids. And uh, I'm going to call him Kevin. Uh, Kevin was a, a tall, good-looking guy. Uh, he had a really good job. Uh, he had just a very steady personality. He was the kind of guy that dads want their daughter to marry. However, the reason Kevin was in my office was he wasn't doing very well. You see, Kevin had been dating this girl, I'm going to call her Kelly, for I think about two years. And it was pretty serious. He was probably just a few weeks, months away from proposing marriage to her. However, the week before, she had discovered a secret about him. Something that he had been keeping hidden throughout their entire dating relationship. And she was absolutely irate over this. Maybe wondering what his sin was. He was smoking. About once, twice a day, Kevin would pull out a cigarette and smoke it. It was just usually in the evening, his way to kind of relax, unwind from the day. And he knew it wasn't great for his health, but he also knew Kelly wouldn't approve of it. And so he kept it hidden. Well, what happened was one day, Kelly, who was uh, still in college, had a class canceled. And so she thought it'd be kind of fun to just swing by work and say hi to her boyfriend. Well, Kevin had been going through something really, really stressful at work, and so he took a very, very rare smoke break. He steps outside to just smoke the cigarette to help him kind of calm down from what was happening inside, and suddenly his two-year girlfriend comes walking up and sees her boyfriend with cigarette in hand. Now, Kevin didn't know what to do. She, she was absolutely incensed over it. And so as I listened to this very, very remorseful 20-something-year-old, I kind of knew what needed to take place. So I arranged a time to meet with Kevin and Kelly together, and I basically just said to Kelly, you got to forgive him, right? If, if God can forgive you of your sins, then you're going to need to forgive him of this secret, how he's kept it hidden from you. And she said, you know, you're, you're, you're right, but it isn't the smoking itself that bothers me so much. Yeah, I don't like it. I had a grandma die from cancer, lung cancer, because of smoking. But the deeper issue for me is that he could keep this hidden for two years. She said that there were times where she would smell smoke on him. And she'd ask him about it. And it was always an excuse. Oh, I was around so-and-so and they smoke. Or I went to the bar or at this restaurant. And, and that's what you smell. He had numerous opportunities to kind of indicate, yeah, you know what? I've got this problem, or I, I, I do this once, maybe twice a day. But he never did. He kept it secret. And her fear was that there might be more secrets. She's like, if he can keep this secret from me, what else is he keeping secret? Well, turns out I was right. She did need to forgive him. However, it turns out she was also right. Because about two weeks later, she discovered that he wasn't just the casual drinker that she thought he was once or twice a month out with friends, that he was a regular drinker. Turns out that each night when he had that daily cigarette, he would also have something else to drink. And it wasn't often just one time a day. It was even two or three times a day. Well, they began to work through that issue. And as they're starting to work through that issue, she gets a text from a friend saying that, this friend just saw Kevin at a restaurant with another woman. 
You know, Kevin's like, no, 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 no. That, that was just a coworker. We were out on a, a job. We need to swing through and get something to eat. It, it's not what it, it looked like it was. But the more Kelly kept pressing, the more she discovered, well, actually, that coworker was the ex that she dated right before Kelly. And, and then it turns out that he had one time had a little too much to drink and had kissed his ex. Within just two months, Kevin went from on the verge of proposing to Kelly to having his reputation absolutely shredded in her eyes and her family's eyes, and, and they completely broke apart. But I want you to imagine that Kevin was successful. I want you to imagine that Kelly did not find him smoking on a smoke break, which did not have her discover his alcohol problem, which did not lead into her discovering that he was kind of being unfaithful to her. And that somehow he proposes marriage. She says yes. They get through premarital counseling. They stand on a stage and they commit to one another. And then a year, two years, three years into the marriage, all of these things begin to be revealed. Now, how do you think Kelly feels? She thinks she married one version of Kevin, but the reality, he was an entirely different person. And she would probably begin to doubt their entire relationship. Now, having been a pastor for as long as I have, I've done a lot of premarital counseling and marriage counseling. And I'm going to tell you, as painful as it is before the ring, it's way easier to deal with these things than after the vows. Because as scripture puts it, when a husband and wife commit to one another, they become one flesh. And so those struggles, those trials, those things that they go through, it's a ripping on that flesh and it hurts. So yeah, it hurt Kelly a lot during the dating years, but it would have been way worse in marriage. So in other words, her discovering his smoking habit on that day which caused the, the avalanche, the, the dam to burst, was a blessing. It was painful. It hurt. But she was spared a lot more grief than if it had been discovered later. Have you ever had a mixed blessing like that? Something that was really painful, maybe shocking, stunned you. And you may even pray, God, why are you letting this happen? But then it turns out that as you have hindsight, you look back and you realize, oh, that was actually a good thing. That was, that was a blessing. Maybe it was a nasty breakup like what Kelly went through. Maybe it was a, a, a getting fired from a job or applying for a job that you thought was yours and then you don't get it. Or maybe you had a, a plan put in place or you started a business and it just, it just like royally failed. It hurt so much in the moment. And yet now as you look back, you realize, oh, that was a blessing. Today, we're going to see a similar type of blessing. We're going to see God bless the church with protection. He's going to purify the church. However, he's going to do it in a very shocking way. In fact, I'm just going to forewarn you. Some of you are not going to like today's passage of Scripture. It's going to bother you. In fact, today's passage of Scripture... Some people use it as an excuse to leave Christianity as well as avoid Christianity. Because they're going to look at it and think, there is no way I would follow a God like that. 
And yet my hope and prayer is that as we study this really awkward passage of Scripture, you will discover God's heart for you and that these things are actually a blessing. So as we get ready to head into a very awkward passage of Scripture, let's pray. So Heavenly Father, as we do go to uh, get ready to go to Acts 5, I pray, Lord, that you would be our teacher ultimately. Lord, that, that the things that I say, I, I pray that you would just put them in line with your heart, with what is accurate and true. If there's anything that I uh, try to say that isn't accurate, I, I pray you might even put a dam on those words and I would not be able to say them. Um, but the things that you want us to hear, that we need to hear, that are of you in your heart and your word, Lord, help us to hear these things. Because on the surface, <laughs> what we're going to hear is uncomfortable. It's hard. So I pray, Father, that you would crack through that so that we would truly see who you are, truly understand your heart for us and your church, and it would help us to trust you all the more. So I ask and pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you brought a Bible with you today, I invite you to open it up to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. We're going to be doing verses 1 through uh, 11 today. If you uh, are a first-time guest and did not bring a Bible, uh, we're, we will be putting most of the Scripture on the screen for you this morning so that you can study it. If you, if you uh, look around, you'll notice some people pulling out their phone. We are fine with digital Bibles. So if you have a Bible on your phone, feel free to use that or download a Bible to your phone. And then that way, wherever you go with your phone, you've always got a Bible available. If you uh, are like me and you're addicted to your phone and you're on it too much, uh, then I'd recommend you get a, a paper Bible, uh, stop by our resource table, and uh, you can uh, uh, take one of the Bibles that's there. And that would be our gift to you. If you are uh, new to Riverwood, we tend to do a diet of like Bible book by book based sermons. We, we just work section by section and often we'll take breaks in there. But, but with that said, we're not opposed to topical sermons. I mean, we've done a number of topical series. We, in fact, here in 2023, we've got a couple of them coming up yet this year. And so there can be really good things in just taking some time to talk about a topic. But one of my fears is that when you do just a very steady diet of topical-based sermons, it becomes easy to avoid passages like what we're going to hear today. However, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture, not some, not most, all Scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God. Why? Because it is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. That means that even the awkward, uncomfortable, question-inducing passages like what we're going to see today can still be useful for our teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. And so while it's very tempting for a guy like me who hates confrontation and would love to just avoid the awkward passages like this, I think we got to stop and look at it and let God confront us and maybe even shock us because I think he actually has something for us. So let's read Acts 5, verses 1 through 11. Please silently read along as I read aloud. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? 
Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. At the end of March, we, uh, studied, we were finishing up chapter 2, and we heard this incredible, beautiful description of the church. And then two weeks ago on Mother's Day, we finished up chapter 4, and we heard there a, a, another beautiful description of the church. So when you take chapter 2, chapter 4, and you put those together, man, what a work of art the church was. I, I, it was just absolutely idyllic, almost sounding perfect. But it's like Luke wants us to realize that, well, well not everything was perfect. But he doesn't just show us a slight little flaw, like, you know, maybe a birthmark on the cheek or, you know, one foot's two inches shorter, you know, not some little flaw like that. No, he wants to see the ugliness. We, we saw in chapter three and chapter four, some of the outside pressures, problems that are coming against the church. Now he wants to see some of the potential inside problems that were there. And it was ugly. At the end of chapter four, we saw a guy by the name of Joseph, better known by his name, Barnabas, give a gift all right, he was used as an illustration, an example of the generosity of the church. Now he shows us a couple who on the outside wanted to appear like Barnabas, but on the inside, they were the exact opposite. But now, two weeks ago, I told you that anytime we have a repeat, like from chapter two and chapter four, God has a purpose. Well, what we notice here is God does it again. He has a repeat. Think about it. We just had two paragraphs that basically repeat themselves. Why? Hey, go, go ahead and throw that slide up there, Zion. Here, here's our pattern. We have an intro sentence, verse 1, kind of sets the stage. We, we know what Ananias and Sapphira are doing. And then we have the setting. Ananias first, and then Sapphira standing before the apostles. Then we have the confrontation, Peter talking to both of them. And then we have the judgment, their death, and the young men come, wrap them up, and carry them out and bury them. And then a, a little outro sentence there in verse 11, saying, great fear seized all those who heard of these things. Now, why didn't Luke just simply tack this on at the end of chapter 4? He could have said, you know, Barnabas gave this gift, and it was really nice and encouraging, and everyone benefited from it. But there was a couple Ananias and Sapphira who tried to do the same thing, but they kept back a portion of it for themselves. It got exposed, the their fraud was exposed, and so God killed them for it. Well, in chapter 4, verse 32, we saw that the church was unified. It says that they were of one heart and soul. So we have the whole church together. 
Now he's showing us that not everyone was unified. Not everyone was truly together. That at least one couple was, in a sense, emotionally and spiritually split from the church. And to help illustrate this, he splits their story, helping us see that they each were complicit in this plan. Now, as a preacher, it's really tempting to then work through that story, to, to look at the setting, go to the confrontation, and finish with the judgment. But my fear is if I do that, you won't hear much of what I say till we get to judgment. In fact, right now, some of you have barely paid any attention to me because you're still thinking, what in the world? God killed them for fraud? This doesn't match our image of God. We see God as this loving God. So often here, I tell us how God shows his love for us through the cross. And yet now he just kills a couple? I mean, if they were mass murderers, we get it. Like, thank you, God, for protecting your church from more deaths. But fraud, really? We've already determined and judged God's wrong. This was not the right, like, judgment sentence upon them. Yeah, maybe, maybe they need to kicked out of the church. Maybe they need to bring the full amount, you know. But death? So this morning, I'm going to share with you my theory. Now, the reason I'm using the word theory is because the text does not say this explicitly. I had this theory kind of going into this week, and the deeper I studied it, the more comfortable I became with my theory. But because the text does not explicitly say what I'm saying today, there is the potential I am wrong. So it might mean you need to go and study more of this yourself. But I'm going to today share with you my theory and then three proofs for it from the text. Here's my theory. My theory is that Ananias and Sapphira were not Christians. They were actually fake Christians. And they were actually wolves in sheep clothing who were trying to worm their way in and could potentially destroy the church. And God was protecting his church through these actions. So here are my three proofs. My first proof is in verse 3. Oh, I totally skipped that, Zion. I, I apologize. Uh, that's right. I, I was supposed to say, okay, some people worry about how they died. We're not going to worry about that, all right? It's a fruitless discussion. Rather, we need to look at why did they die. Uh, why did they die? Here are my three proofs for why they died. All right, Ver look in verse 3. Um, first of all, we see Peter say, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, the word there translated filled, which the majority of translations use, it could be translated exercise control of or, or, or over. In Ephesians 5.18, we are told to not be filled, controlled by alcohol, but rather as Christ followers, we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, controlled by God's Spirit. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you understand the, the work of Jesus on the cross through the empty tomb, and you've put all of your faith in this, you have received God's spirit, and you are to be living in such a way that God's spirit is now controlling you. Well, if you are being filled and controlled by God's spirit, you cannot also simultaneously be filled and controlled by Satan. Satan is God's adversary. Satan is wanting to ruin anything and everything that God is doing. We have seen the church here in Acts growing like crazy. They are growing numerically. They are growing spiritually. I mean, it's just remarkable what's happening. 
And so no wonder Satan is trying to stop it. He tried to stop it in chapter 3 and 4 through the Sanhedrin, coming against Peter and John, threatening them. We're going to see more of that type of thing coming up. But they didn't work. And so now he's trying to ruin the church from the inside. And so if he could get Ananias and Sapphira, he has filled them, he's controlling them, gives them this plot to look like what Barnabas did, to give a gift, sell off some land, give the gift, and people will be like, oh, wow, that's so awesome, that's wonderful, and welcome them in. Now not only are they more accepted, but they now have a slight bit of influence. Because people might say, well, maybe we should listen to what Ananias and Sapphira have to say. Because, I mean, after all, they gave that large gift. Let, let's see what they have to say in this. And they begin to worm their way in, and potentially Satan could use them like a cancer and rot the church from the inside out. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you cannot be filled by Satan. Instead, you are filled by the Spirit. And by the Spirit, it is trying to bring unity. And so what we're seeing here is they are not trying to bring unity to the church. They're trying to get the church to accept them, to love them, and therefore they can therefore have more influence upon them. So the fact that, that Peter identifies them as being filled by Satan or controlled by Satan, number one tells me they're not true followers of Christ. They were fake Christians. The second thing, the second proof I have is, is the way they died. I, I, I did a lot of research this week trying to find situations of people who died in a very similar manner. I was able to think of some uh, through study and I found another one. But they all happen to people who are not God-fearers. Now, there, there's a number of people in Scripture who are God-fearers, and they commit great transgressions, but never are they killed in a moment like this. <laughs> Think about one of the, the, the worst sins in the Old Testament. We've got King David. He is a man after God's own heart, and yet he goes and not only commits adultery, he tries to hide it by having Bathsheba's husband put on the front lines so that he is killed. So basically murder by proxy. And yet God does not kill David like that. In fact, he uses David to produce eventually the Messiah, Jesus. Or take the, the New Testament. Peter denies the Son of God three times. And, and yet he restores Peter rather than kill him. And as we've already seen here in the book of Acts, Peter is like one of the, the vocal pieces of the church. And God is using him tremendously. Under Peter's preaching, there have been roughly 5,000 people who are now a part of the church. And yet, we see some people who do die in a moment, but they're not God-fearers. Back in uh, the Old Testament, in Numbers 26, we've got uh, Aaron, the, the brother of Moses, Aaron is a priest, and so were his sons. Two of his sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu, they are killed instantly when they try to offer some sort of strange fire, is what the text tells us. They were doing what was outside of what God wanted. They were not true worshipers, followers of God. They were doing it their own way, and God kills them in an instant for that. Also, and this one's probably in my head because uh, we're in the book of Acts, but when we get to chapter 12, we're going to see Herod, King Herod, drop dead in an instant. He's going to be talking to some people. They're going to say, this is not the voice of a man, but of a God. And he's going to accept that worship. And in that moment, God is going to kill him. So God seems to only do this with people who are not 
followers of, of him. But those who do worship him, who do follow him, yeah, they commit transgressions. Yeah, there are consequences for that. But I could not find an instant of someone just instantaneously dying like this. My third proof today is the fact that Ananias and Sapphira are killed for sin. I mean, th- think about it. Why are they killed? For lying to God. We see it both in verse 3 and verse 4. So they're killed for their sin. And yet, if you are a follower of Jesus, what do we know the scripture teaches? That Jesus paid for your sin. That when you put all of your faith, all of your belief on Jesus' work on the cross and through the empty tomb, your sin has been paid for. I think that is why we don't see anyone else who is a follower of God have their, their sin paid for through death because it's already been paid for by death. But the fact that they die in that moment makes me believe they did not truly put their faith in Jesus. They maybe understood these things maybe on a cognitive level, but they were never truly surrendering their life. They were not there because God has drawn them to the church. They're there because they're trying to use the church. And and so I, I think the fact that they end up dying for this tells me that they had never put their faith in Jesus and allowed his death to pay for their sins. Now, if they were true followers of Jesus, still had somehow concocted this plan. Maybe they were just really lonely. Maybe they just were really unloved. Maybe they were socially awkward and they thought this is the way to, you know, make everyone like them more. There would still be consequences. There would probably be some sort of discipline, but I don't think it would have been death. The fact that God went to such an extreme measure tells me that there's something far more extreme going on. I think they had a very insidious plan in place that has been concocted by Satan. Now again, the text does not say this outright. So I'm I'm having to read between the lines. But because of what I know about God, of what we see throughout the scriptures, he does this because it's serious. And I believe they were actually trying to ruin the church. They were trying to worm their way in and slowly rot it from the inside out. That means that this extreme action was a blessing. God was protecting his church and purifying it so that these things wouldn't happen on the inside because God knew some of the things that were going to be coming from the outside. He knew the persecution that was about to come. And if they were rotten at the core, when the storm came, it would all blow over. So yes, God took a very extreme measure to protect them but just as they sometimes put electrical paddles to help kickstart a heart or get it back in rhythm, maybe God's using this shock to help keep the church's heart in rhythm with his heart. So that's what I think is going on. All right, so what? Like, literally, what, what does this mean for tomorrow's holiday? For going back to work on Tuesday or back to school? Like, what difference does this make in life? Well, I I think it makes quite a bit. Number one, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have put all of your faith in the gospel, I I think you can be at peace. You do not have to worry that yesterday's lie means you're going to drop dead today. I, I, I think you're okay. Now, does your lie have consequences? Yeah. So by all means, confess that. Make amends with maybe who you hurt. 
but your sin has been paid for. And so just ask God to continue to empower you to live out the identity he's given you in Christ. And, and, and don't exult in your sin. Confess it and move on from it and be at peace. But what if you're here today and you know deep down you're not a follower of Jesus? But because your family is, you, you grew up around this, and so you're just pretending. What do you do? Stop pretending. Give your life to Jesus. God loves you so much. He didn't just go to the extreme measure of protecting his church by killing off Ananias and Sapphira. He loves you so much, he went and paid for your sin himself, dying on the cross. That's how much God loves you. So you don't need to pretend. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian and I got to go and act really nice. Make sure I don't say certain words around certain people. I got to, you know, make sure that I have the radio tuned to the right place when certain people are around me. But man, when I'm on my own, I can just be whoever I want. God does not want you trying to live your life with one foot in the world and one foot in his church. Jump all in. The reason we're named Riverwood is we're named after a river and found in Ezekiel 47. That river brings life. I believe that river represents Jesus. I want to see you jump all into the river. Don't try and straddle any longer. Jump all in and let Jesus become your identity. Let him give you his Holy Spirit. Let him begin to fill you and control you. He doesn't want you trying to live in these two worlds because it is tearing at you and ripping you. And one day it will be discovered and there will be some people who will want to get away from you like Kelly did from Kevin. I don't want you living that secret life anymore. Come fully into God's light. Let him be your identity. Give your life to Jesus. Now, to those of you who are here, who are not followers of Jesus, but are honest enough to admit it to yourself and everyone else, first, thank you for your honesty. But second, I give you the exact same invitation. Give your life to Jesus. Don't let this passage scare you that God's going to just kill you. As I said, this instance that we see in Scripture is so rare. God almost never works this way. Instead, the few instances that we see in Scripture, we see hundreds more of people given grace. God gives you grace because he loves you, he's for you, and he wants you part of his family. He's already done everything he needs to for you. He's already paid your penalty for your sin. He now invites you just to give it all to him. But now that means when you put your life in Christ, you're saying, okay, I'm all in. And so therefore you're saying, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to be controlled by him. And so therefore everything you have belongs to him. Now, that, that does not mean that you've got to go and, and you know, sell everything off and, and give it all here at Riverwood. You know, if, if we went back and looked in verse 3, Peter tells Ananias, I mean, I think it's verse 4, says, hey, Ananias, it was yours. You could have done with it what you wanted. You didn't have to give any of it to the church. They could have even given some to the church, kept some for themselves, but admitted it. Yeah, we sold it for this much, so we're giving a tithe off of it. Or we're giving 50% of it. Or we want to give 80% of it. No, it was the fact that they were trying to lie so that they could get rooted into the church more and then cause the problems. God does not want you to be living apart from him. 
He's already done everything to bring you in. He just then says, when you give yourself to him, give it all. Emotionally, spiritually, mentally, financially, physically, it all belongs to him. For some of us, that sounds so scary. And yet that's actually going to lead us to the freest place possible. That's where your greatest joy will be found. The world tries to tell you, no, your greatest joy will be found in riches or in fame or in power or in whatever. And yet time after time after time, the world lies to us. God is saying the greatest life you can possibly have is found in me. So if you are not a follower of Jesus, I want to just pray a, a prayer. And if you are ready to give your life to Jesus, just pray this with me. Heavenly Father, we recognize this story of Jesus coming to this earth to live the only sinless life that's ever been lived, and yet he went and died upon the cross, a sinner's death. And we now realize that he did that for us. He did that on our behalf. Lord, you said in Isaiah that it's by his stripes we are healed, that when those whips went across Christ's back, stripping that back of its flesh, it's those stripes, his death, that heals us of our sin. And so, Lord, I pray right now for the person who's been faking it or the person who's honest enough to say, I've not been following you, that they today would let today be their spiritual birthday, that they would give their life to you and that their sins would be healed. Your scriptures then teach that when we put our faith in you, you give us the Holy Spirit. As it says in Ephesians 1.14, we are sealed with your Holy Spirit. And so Lord, I pray that you would begin to take control of them, to lead them, to fill them, so that they would begin the process of becoming more like Jesus, so that they might love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. Father, for some of us, to take this kind of a step can be scary. And so would you give us the courage and bravery to fully put all of our faith, all of our identity, all of our trust in you. And God, as they do this, as you fill them with your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give them immense joy. As they cross over that line of faith, as they move from spiritual darkness into spiritual light, and they, they move from spiritual death into spiritual life, as they move away from being separated from you to now being adopted by you, that that would fill them with joy the kind of joy that the early church experienced, the kind of joy that shows us just how much you love us. And God, I pray it would not just be a happiness that is found in the moment, but a joy that will last forever. God, I pray for the believer in Christ who's here today. Maybe they uh, know these things, they know they're true, but they know they haven't been following you. God, I thank you that our sin has been paid for through Christ not just our, our uh, past sins, but even our future sins, that the cross was so powerful, it resonated across all of time. So I pray, Father, you'd help us to have peace in that, to know that even the sins that we just did yesterday and even the sins we might commit tomorrow are forgiven. And yet, God, help us to not presume upon that grace, to think we can therefore go and do whatever we want Instead, may we appreciate that grace, wanting to live the life you called us to live because of who you are. So God, during these next holy moments of communion, I pray that you would just minister, that you would draw us to you, that we'd come before your throne of grace with confidence because of who you are and what you've done, that each of the believers here who, who take of these elements would be thankful for what you've done 
knowing that their sin has been paid and they will therefore not have to pay the penalty of death. That even when their physical body dies, who they truly are will always live forever. And Lord, the person that today is putting their faith in you, as they take these communion elements for the very first time, they would realize what you've done for them through the cross in the empty tomb. And today becomes a day of joy. That as we have heard this incredibly shocking, disturbing passage of Scripture, it actually helps to see how much you love us and how much you're for us and the lengths to which you will go to protect us and purify us. So I pray that now would be a time of confession, but also celebration. Lord, use these next holy moments for your glory and our joy. We pray and ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.